I am Pastor Carlos, and I am just honored to be before you this morning. I just want to, I hope that you are blessed as a result of hearing God's word this morning. And welcome to Compassion Sunday. And when I, when I think of compassion, I think of words and emotions like empathy, which is, you know, when we put ourselves in a person's situation or position so that we could try to imagine and understand what they may be going, going through. I think of sympathy, which is understanding how they feel because we've been there. We understand their distress or their hurt or their discomfort. We usually, all of us in this room, I think, think of compassion as just feeling sorry for someone. As a matter of fact, the dictionary defines compassion as the sympathetic consciousness of others' distress together with a desire to alleviate it. However, God has shown us concrete examples through his word of what compassion really is. And I'm surprised to see that the, the, the description of compassion is just a desire because compassion should go a step further. It should do something instead of just desiring to do something. I mean, that's what really what compassion does. It does something, not just desire. I mean, even if it's a situation where there's nothing that you can do anything about, like, you know, when you encounter someone who's blind or crippled, there is still something that we can do. We can always pray. Throughout the Bible, Jesus asks us to get involved and love and care for the, for the orphans and the widows, for the less fortunate, the disenfranchised, the voiceless, the helpless, the hopeless, the ones who are hurting, the people that are in distress. He asks us to care for the least of these. In fact, James tells us that religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after the orphans and the widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. You see, the test of real religion, our test of real religion, includes compassionate deeds. That is, pure, undefiled, unstained religion in the sight of God is that we would look after the orphans and the widows. Real religion is active compassion in contrast to empty ceremony, which is really what James was trying to address here. Real compassion is more than a desire. It, is, it provides those who are in need with what they need. Real compassion is not just an emotion, but it has to turn into an action. James goes on to say in, in chapter 2, verse 14, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds, can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you say to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Meaning that as a body of believers, as the church, as the hands and the feet of Jesus, we are required to act. We are required to exercise our faith because faith, it says by itself, if not accompanied with action, is dead. And I know that not all of us here are gifted in the areas of compassion, like when we have the gifts of mercy and help. But this scripture tells us that we all have to, when we feel that desire to help, we are all called to action. When we see a need, you see, we obtain this knowledge and we put it into our brain, which turns into this feeling of compassion. And then we desire to help. But somewhere in between that desire and action, there is a disconnect. And oftentimes we take that knowledge and we use it to our own advantage. And I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, my mom used to tell me, you better eat all your vegetables because there's someone starving in Africa. 
And I hope that after today, we can really understand the significance and how the severity of what those statesmen's truly carried. I mean, they are people and kids starving in Africa. There's a scripture in Matthew 25 that will give us some more insight and perspective into what our part of compassion should look like or should be. So let's turn our Bibles, or maybe I should say, let's turn on our Bibles to this, this famous Bible passage. And this is where Jesus is teaching his disciples about the kingdom of heaven. And he says, and starting in verse 31, but when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit upon his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered in his presence and he will separate the people as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep at his right hand and the goats at his left. Then the king will say to those on the right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you invited me into your home. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then these righteous ones will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink or a stranger and show you hospitality or naked and give you clothing? When did we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will say, I tell you the truth. When you did it for one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it for me. And here we find Jesus taking this common activity of a shepherd and applying really deep symbolism to it. As is typical in Hebrew poetry, we don't have any gray areas here. This picture is painted very sharply between black and white. All men, and includes you and I, fall into one of two classes, symbolically sheep and goats. The sheep, identified as the righteous, are given the right hand which was the place of power and honor. The distinction between the sheep and the goats, I think it's easy for all of us to understand because in the countryside, sheep and goats mingle during the day. And at night, they're often separated. You see, sheep can tolerate the cooler air where the goats need to be herded together to keep warm. But when it comes to people at the end of time, there are some distinctions made and the righteous represented by the sheep are identified in two ways. The first way is that us, as God followers, as the sheep, as the righteous, we need to provide simple acts of compassion. And you can write that down in your notes outline. And notice the simple responses in the actions of the righteous. It's giving someone a drink, something to eat, clothes to wear, a visit. I mean, these are all very basic things. There's no glamour. There's no trophies, no prestige. I mean, God's followers are identified by saying, Lord, Lord, and repeating verbal expressions of faith. They're not identified by what we say. They are references providing numerous acts of self-sacrificing service referred, I mean, unnoticeably, provided unnoticeably to their fellow man. Now, this is a picture of Carol. I've known Carol for over 10 years. And I put this picture up there because when I first saw that picture that was taken by a guy from our church by the name of James, James Hughes, I was really just staring into her eyes and, and it just, they just spoke to me. And as you stare into her eyes, what are they telling you? Do you think that she's hurting? 
Do you see the emptiness in her eyes? Do you think that she's hopeless and she's helpless? I met her when we first started going to Long Beach to feed the homeless. And she's been there ever since. I don't know her story. I don't know how she became homeless. I know she loves Jesus. But the one thing I do know is that mostly every time we're in Long Beach, she's there. And for some of you that have been there, we just went last week, might have even recognized Carol. And I think maybe you've never really noticed her when you went there, but you went to provide a meal for her and you fed her because you were led to compassion to feed the homeless. And that is what God is talking about when he says giving something to eat to the least of these. You see, oftentimes we see needs like Carol's and we justify not helping or giving because we say, well, she's still going to be homeless tomorrow. Or if we give her something, she's probably just going to use it for drugs or alcohol. After all, she got herself there. But real compassion says that we will provide others simple acts of kindness regardless of why and how they got there. The second way that God's followers are identified is that they use their resources to be a blessing. An unusual part of this judgment scene is the ways those on the left, the goats, try to excuse themselves on the grounds that they had no opportunity to help. They even ask it in a tone of wounded innocence. They said, then when did we ever see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and not help you? I mean, this question is asked in a more condensed, you notice it's a lot more condensed and an agitated manner than the surprised inquiry of the righteous who were disclaiming the very credit that was given to them. But note the king's response. He says, I tell you the truth, when you refuse to help the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were refusing to help me. In this judgment scene, it is not so much the wrongdoing that evokes a severe disapproval, but rather the utter failure to do good. The sin of omission is seen as more serious than the sin of commission. And so those on the left, the goats, are lost for just failing to notice the many opportunities for showing compassion which had been given to them, which had been presented and put in front of them. The least of these are defined as the hungry and the thirsty and the strangers and the sick and the prisoners and those who need clothes. Which by that very same definition, if you and I are not either of those, we're not hungry or we're not thirsty, then that makes us the most of these. And as being the most of these, I think all of us in this room really fall into that category. I am reminded of a story in the Bible of a rich man who had an abundant harvest. However, he had no place to put it all because he had outgrown his barn. So his plan, since he had so much wealth, was to tear down his old barns and build new ones so that he could put all of his wealth. But this is a God response to him in Luke. He says, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This side will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. You see, God blesses us the most of these, in order that we could be a blessing to others. All of us, every single person in this room has been given something that we can share with others. And if we don't take those opportunities that we have to be a blessing and either squander it or even hoard these things for ourselves, the scripture tells us that they will eventually be taken from us. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, the Bible says that the Good Samaritans took out two denarii 
and gave it to the innkeeper. And it says, look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for an extra expense that you may have. You guys know the story of the Good Samaritan? It's of a man that actually stopped by the side of the road to help a total stranger in need. And more so than a stranger, he was an enemy and he still helped stop to help. Are we willing to do the same? Back then, a Roman soldier was paid 225 denarii a year. That's roughly about four denarii per week. So this is telling us that this Samaritan man took half of a week's salary to be able to provide a hotel for this man who was in need. Also keep in mind that this Samaritan left with no way of being repaid, but he seemed to be okay with that. Compassion says that we will use whatever resources we have to help the least of these. Third, God followers naturally serve others. Neither the sheep nor the goats are surprised, surprised at the place the king gives them. They are surprised at the reason the king gives. The punchline of this parable is in verse 40. When you did it for one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it for me. The surprise of the righteous at this statement makes it impossible to think that works of righteousness or works of compassion win salvation. How they treated the least of these was not for the purpose of being accepted or rejected by the king. Did not, the sheep did not show love to gain heaven. You see, Jesus is interested here in the righteousness of the whole person. A righteousness from the heart. True disciples will love one another and serve the least brother with compassion. And in doing so, they unconsciously serve Christ. And in the same way, those who have very little sympathy for the gospel of the kingdom will remain indifferent and in doing so, reject Christ. When we respond to others, we are responding to Christ. If you see, real compassion is a natural response to our relationship. It is a natural response to the love and what God has done for us. That is what real compassion is. You know, apple trees don't, really strain themselves to grow apples. They are created to be a fruit tree and to provide apples for all of us. They don't sit there and painstakingly grunt and moan and make noises to produce apples. They produce apples because that's what they naturally do. They can't help themselves. They were created to produce apples. And in the same way, God's followers, and if you're sitting here in this room, you are created to naturally provide acts of kindness to be led by compassion, because that's just what we were created to do. The fourth thing is that God's followers are willing to be interrupted. Jesus' entire ministry was about interruption. It happened over and over again. People would try to reach out to him just to try and touch his mantle. They would yell at him. They would try to jump at him. They would do whatever it takes to be healed by him, whether he was teaching or whether he was just trying to obtain some rest. But Jesus always seemed to be okay with this. In Mark chapter 2, we read the story of a paralytic man who was healed by Jesus because his friends were not only willing to be interrupted themselves, they were willing to interrupt Jesus on his behalf. We, keep, we pick up the story in verse 2 and it says, They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. 
since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it. First of all, that's rude. Who wants a hole in the roof? But it says, by digging through it, and then they lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. And what I find fascinating about this part of Scripture is that not only how everyone was willing to be interrupted, but how Jesus healed the man because of the friend's faith. Verse 5 tells us that when Jesus saw their faith, he healed the man. Folks, when God sees our efforts with the least of these, he stops, he listens, and he even does miracles because of our faith. Pastor Sergio from our sister church in Mexico, I was talking to him a few days ago, and he was telling me that two Sundays ago, he was so exhausted and so drained from the Sunday services that when a lady came to his door about one in the morning and knocked on it, he didn't know what, he, he didn't really feel like answering. But he did it anyway, and he proceeds to go to the door, and there's this frantic lady telling him, oh, I don't know what to do. I've tried everything. I've gone to priests. I've gone to the local healers, and my son and daughter are still possessed by demon. They told me that you could help. And Sergio jokingly tells me that, you mean I, was, I wasn't even her first choice. I was her third choice. She could have at least came to me first. See, he said, I felt like telling her, just add me to the list and keep moving on. Sergio left his house at one in the morning and literally went to cast out demons. And I tell you that part of the story is because I want you guys to know one thing as well, that demons are real. And that's something that we're fighting. And sometimes they're sometimes in our face like Sergio. And he returned from one in the morning. He returns at six in the morning. You see, Sergio was willing to be interrupted. And the beauty of the story and the reason I share it with you is not only to, to, for you to understand what interruptions can do, but what it also, the results of being interrupted or what they can bring. He tells me that this last Sunday, this family that was freed, not only by demons, by, by a lot of oppression, was taking up the first two front rows of their entire Sunday service. So now there are people thanking God because he, one man, was willing to be interrupted. You see, if we're going to care for the orphans and the widows and the least of this, we need to be willing to be interrupted and give something that we don't have much of, and that is our time. There's a study that was done a while ago by the Princeton Review, and they took a group of divinity students at the Princeton Theological Seminary, and they were told that they were going to do a practice sermon. So to half of the students, they gave them the parable of the Good Samaritan. That was their topic. And, of course, we all know the story of the parable of the Good Samaritan, the guy that stopped by the side of the road to help a total stranger in need. And to the other half, they gave him whatever topic. And then one by one, they took him from one building, and they had him walk to the next building where they were going to present their sermon. And in the middle of those two buildings, they planted a person who was moaning, I mean, hunched over and moaning and groaning, and he was clearly in need. And they, what they wanted to find out is if the persons, if the students would actually stop to help someone in need in the midst of them studying the parable of the Good Samaritan. And they discovered that the answer was no. Instead, they discovered that stopping or not stopping was determined by how much in a hurry the students were. 
They found that those students who were running late and absorbed and concentrated on the topic that they were going to speak about were unlikely to help. In fact, only 10% of those students actually stopped to help that person in need. Can you imagine studying the parable of the Good Samaritan, seeing the need and not stopping? The difference between stopping and not stopping to help boiled down to the student's time and schedule. And I think that is our same predicament today, don't you? If our default wiring is to feel compassion, desire to help, and do something about it, well, then we don't because then we're just too busy. We become self-absorbed with so many things, and most of them, probably all of them are great things, things like our goals and our dreams and our tasks and our careers and sports and kids, that we fail to recognize that there's so many hurting people around us, and some of them may be even sitting next to you today. God's followers also act justly and love mercy. There's a conversation between God and the people of Israel found in Micah chapter 6. And in verses 1 through 5, the Lord introduces his case against the disobedient people of Israel. And in verses 6 and 7, it records Israel's response with a series of questions beginning with, with what shall I come to the Lord? And in Micah 8, uh, Verse 8, it says, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Verse 8 is God's answer rooted in the law of Moses. He has told you, O man, what is good. In other words, Israel should have already known the answer to their question. Then God says that he did not need or desire their religious rites or sacrifices. Instead, the Lord sought after Israel's justice, mercy, and humility. The answer to Israel's sin problem was not more numerous or more painful sacrifices. The answer was something much, much deeper than any religious observance. They needed a change of heart. And so it is with us this morning. Perhaps we need a change of heart. Act justly would have been understood by Micah's audience as living with a sense of right and wrong. Love mercy in Hebrew means loyal love or loving kindness. Along with justice, Israel's was to provide mercy. Both justice and mercy are foundational to God's character. Walk humbly is a description of the heart's attitude towards God. God's people depend on him rather than depending on ourselves. Instead of taking pride in what we bring to God, we humbly recognize that no amount of personal sacrifice can replace a commitment of our heart to our Lord. And the message of Micah is still pertinent today. Religious rites, no matter how extravagant, can never compensate if we don't show love. Our compliance to rules is not as valuable in God's eyes as a humble heart that simply does what is right. The ultimate way to show compassion is to tell others about Christ. The ultimate way and the only reason we do all of these services when we're led by compassion is ultimately so that we can get close to them so that they can know who we serve so that we can bring more people to Christ. That is the ultimate way to show justice and love mercy. It is the ultimate way to care for the least of these, to tell them about Christ. Now, I'm going to ask Allison Collins to come up for a second. I've asked her to read a letter from a girl by the name of Myra Palacios. And Myra is a young girl 
from our sister church in Mexico. Myra, about six years ago, had a dream. Like most of the girls in her neighborhood, they quit school about 16, and there's really no hope or for them at that time. So unfortunately, and this is a fact, uh, a lot of them just get pregnant and get married at a very young age. But she had a dream to do something different. And about six, six years ago, her dream also almost ended because from that side of town, there's, there's really not a lot of uh, resources to count on. So she's ready to quit school because she couldn't pay for her school anymore. So I asked Allison to come and read a letter that six years later, she is writing to us, Canyon Hills. Dear Canyon Hills, May the Lord bless you. First, I want to thank God for his great love and mercy and for giving me the blessing of finishing my studies. Not too long ago, I received an unimaginable blessing at a time when I was ready to quit school. I was determined to leave my nursing studies since my parents could not afford to pay my tuition. One day, some beautiful women gave me the most wonderful news I have received in my life. They told me that God has placed a burden in their hearts to provide my tuition so that I could continue my studies. At first, I did not know how to react, whether to scream, laugh, or cry. All I knew was that my heart was filled with joy. All I could do was thank my creator, the owner of my soul, because he had heard my prayer. My dream was to be a nurse so that I could help people, not only physically, but spiritually as well. I've never seen myself in a hospital or clinic, but on the mission field. When I finished nursing school, I still did not understand what plans God had in store for me. Three years had passed, and I still remember. It was a Monday when I felt God call me to go to a theological seminary. I felt the desire to prepare, but I had doubt because I thought I should work and earn an income to help my family. It was not until I went on my first mission trip to minister to the we call people in the mountains of Jalisco that I understood God's purpose for my life and my provision for his nursing school. There I was able to heal people physically, but also to help them hear about the word of God and what he had done in my life. God has taken control of my life from there. I've had the opportunity to go on several mission trips now and I've met some wonderful people now I feel called to go to Morocco and know that God will provide the means and the way where I will use my nursing career to reach the lost. I thank God for the beautiful women at Canyon Hills, especially Allison Collins, as well as my other brothers and sisters in California who allowed themselves to be an instrument and who were led by compassion and used by God to help me achieve the desires of my heart. I will be forever thankful. May God bless you and multiply your efforts a hundred to one. I love you in Christ's love. Myra Palacios. Thank you, Allison. Allison didn't know that she was reading this letter until this morning. Allison doesn't know the impact that she made on this woman's life. You see, it was Allison that organized everything to provide a scholarship to this person. And six years later, there's still a young girl out there whose entire life was changed as a result of one person being led by compassion, doing something different. I can honestly tell you because I know this girl very well that her whole situation, a whole generation will change as a result of someone's compassion towards her. So much so that today her and her family are still praising God. Can you imagine someone being called to the missions field as a result of you doing something? Can you imagine the treasure that you're going to store up in heaven as a result of being led by those compassion feelings that you may have? 
This is not just something we do naturally. There's a result to it. There's a there's something that happens that God blesses it. I'm going to call the worship team up, which is Ian. I think you guys know Ian. Ian is, is my son. And I'm asking him to sing a song, and I want to encourage you that through this next song, do a couple of things. Number one, I want you to meditate and read the words that are going to be up on the screen. And then as God leads you, I would ask that you would ask your creator, God, what would you have me do? And if you already know that God is asking you to do something, then the the next thing that I would encourage you to say is three words. God, use me. You see, we are Jesus' ambassadors to others here on earth. We are his hands and his feet, and we are to be a blessing to all of those who are hurting around us. As we act justly and love mercy, we should be compelled to tell everyone about Jesus because it would naturally flow out of the relationship and the loving relationship that we have with our Christ. We should be singing out hallelujah. We should be crying out hallelujah. We should be compelled to shout it from the mountains and scream it from the mountains that we serve a wonderful and beautiful, merciful God.
Just join me for a moment of prayer. Father, I thank you for this church and just the great hearts of generosity that have assembled here to worship you. But Lord, my prayer today would be that you just give us your eyes and increase our hearts. Lord, give us the ability to see the needs that you see and the hearts to give generously, Lord, as you so generously blessed and given us. And Lord, I, I just happen to believe that you've placed us as a church right here in this city, in this county, in this place, Lord, to be a blessing. And not only to people in faraway places, but God, even right here. So Lord, I just pray that you'd increase our generosity and help us to help other people come to know you and Lord, maybe we have to do some things to clothe and to feed, to meet their immediate needs before we can ever earn a right to be heard. So God, help us to, to know your heart, see what you see, meet the needs that we can, that we might be able to share Christ with them. We pray in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.